Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in March of 2016. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Scott Baker. Scott Baker is the president of Common Ground NYC, a Georgia's group focusing on social justice and economic equity for all. He is also the blogger for the Huffington Post as well as the Op-Ed News. He has written dozens of articles regarding land speculation and how to improve the real estate market. Together, we discuss the economics of real estate, how land value taxes can generate more equal opportunity, and why New York was able to achieve a building boom in the 1920s, but not now. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Scott. Yes. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Okay. Just let the audience know we have Scott Baker, uh, uh, an activist, uh, active in Georgia's circles. In New York City, does extensive writing on social problems, tax issues, uh, well-known speaker, blogger, uh, just a, a man who has an incredible amount of knowledge about real estate and tax policies in the New York City uh, area. He also talks and is well well versed in banking and public banking options and financing options. So. We have Scott here specifically, though, to talk about New York City land values, uh, some of the missed opportunities to tax those land values, and some of the programs that might be of help in channeling land value taxation uh, to useful social projects. So, uh, Scott, with that, uh, let's talk about the recent study that we've both seen on the value of New York City's land over time and culminating in today, if you want to give us a general understanding of what's happened since, I think, uh, 1950. Right. Well, <clears throat> this study just came out. It's from Rutgers University, primarily, uh, by two professors and a graduate student. And uh, they traced uh, the land values from 1950 through 2013, and they basically broke it into three periods from 1950 to 1977, when there was a big trough because the city was, was collapsing, and then uh, again up through 1993 when there was uh, uh, the beginning of the next boom uh, because there was a bit of a collapse at the end of the 80s and into the early 90s, um, and then uh, currently. So they say on average the uh, land values have gone up 5.1%. Um, now they uh, looked at vacant land because they wanted to disaggregate the value from the buildings on top. That's 5% a year compounded. Uh, compounded, yes. Since 1950. 5.1% a year. And uh, it's much more recently. Since uh, in the last cycle, and it's from 93 to 2013, it's 15.8% a year. Um, so it's extremely uh, high and better than the stock market. And uh, basically the best investment you could have made uh, is in New York City real estate. Um, so, you know, they've taken uh, the vacant land in Manhattan. They're only looking at Manhattan. Uh, and currently that, they say, is 3.2% uh, of the land is vacant. And there's a couple of caveats and so on. But, but uh, basically this is buildable land. 
they looked at the actual sales so there's not to confuse it with assessments, which are often too low. Um, but they looked at actual sales of vacant land, and that way they came up with these figures. Uh, so this is uh, an amount that's uh, drastically undertaxed. Uh, uh, they say that, but I've been saying that too. A lot of people have been saying that, all the Georgists. And if we taxed it properly, uh, we could untax uh, sales and, and income and, and uh, you know, true capital-like buildings themselves, uh, and then we would have enough uh, money to run the city. Yeah, now they were only looking at Manhattan, so if you take all of the five boroughs, you certainly get over a trillion dollars. Um, even the New York City Department of Planning Assessment, uh, which everybody acknowledges is out of date and not, uh, uh, you know, it's not been brought up to speed, um, is a half a trillion dollars. But uh, if you properly assess everything, we think it's over a trillion for the entire city. But the fact is, if it's, uh, if it's close to a trillion dollars of land value in Manhattan, and if you assumed on an asset that uh, real estate would return at least 5% a year, so you've got land that you would hold that in some form that's worth 5% a year, that's, so we, we certainly know that that's an undertaxed, undertaxed asset. And we're not talking about the building values in Manhattan either. We're talking about only land values. Right, only land values, only locational values. So this is just a huge asset that's not really taxed properly, and that accounts for probably why it's got such huge value in the, in the first place. So if we, if we say that that's going to continue, then uh, that's a pretty reliable base for our tax uh, revenues. Um, so yeah, I mean, we wouldn't need to tax anything else, basically. And, and you know, removing the deadweight loss of taxes on income and taxes on sales and taxes on buildings, plus all the complication of figuring these things out and, and looking for loopholes and paying accountants and tax attorneys. Uh, you know, you would save so much on that, uh, and then people would be able to keep everything they earn instead of giving 20 or 30 percent of it back in taxes uh, or more. Uh, you know, that would be uh, such a spur to development and to production. And, and of course, then the, the people that own these houses, and we're not talking about just the high-rises, the townhouses and the smaller houses, their real estate tax would go up significantly on the land portion. It would drop on the building portion, and their income taxes or state income taxes at least would go down. So uh, whether that uh, uh, would be a true offset, in, in Manhattan's case, I'm not so sure, because the values of Manhattan real estate are, are so high. Well. I mean, what we figure is that, uh, uh, well, I mean, basically there's enough uh, in the appreciation, uh, as we just calculated here, uh, you know, that you wouldn't need to tax uh, these other forms of income. Um, the prices would come down. I mean, we, we know that from uh, empirically and, and just from uh, uh, common sense, if you if you tax something more, then the price you're going to get for that item is not going to be as high because people won't pay on both ends. They're either going to pay a high tax or they'll pay a high price, but not both. Um, and so we've done a little bit of work on that. Uh, now, Mayor de Blasio actually promised to do something along these lines to tax uh, the vacant land at prices approximating uh, similar uh, location built upon land uh, when he was running for mayor. And it was one of his core positions, and it was written up in cranes, but then nothing came of it. Um, so this is the power of the real estate lobby. So instead of 
doing what we should be doing and taxing the land. Instead of doing that, we've got these programs like 421A, which actually go in the reverse direction and provide huge tax abatements, uh, you know, up to 95%. And instead of uh, collecting the tax, we're saying to the developers, okay, we'll basically pay you to develop affordable housing, so-called, somewhere else. Um, but it doesn't really work very well because it's never enough housing and it's never really that affordable. Uh, I read somewhere that the uh, median income required for the average uh, offset housing from this program is about 80000 a year, uh, which is about 30000 more than the median income for the uh, city. So, and, and of course, it's way above uh, what a low-income person is making. Uh, so it's not really affordable and it's not enough housing. And you're losing a billion point one dollars a year, uh, $1.1 billion a year in uh, the actual program itself directly because you're not collecting the tax. Why don't you uh, describe the, the, the 57? Uh, yeah, uh, well, you've got this one building, 157 uh, on 57th Street, which the New York Times designated as Billionaire's Row. And uh, that building uh, has about 90 apartments including some very expensive duplexes and triplexes, which uh, are not space efficient because they're so enormous, they can be 15,000 square feet or more. And uh, one of them sold for $100 million recently. And so this uh, is an apartment that uh, uh, was probably purchased by a foreign buyer, uh, won't be occupied year-round. It's, it's what New York Magazine called a stash pad. And uh, it's got a 95% tax abatement. So New York Post... Uh, newspaper ran a comparison of this $100 million uh, apartment and they compared it to a $1 million uh, condo, actual $1 million condo, and they found out that the actual tax is actually greater nominally on the $1 million condo than on the $100 million condo. So it's not just the rate, uh, which is, is more than 100 times less uh, on the uh, $100 million condo, but nominally the actual amount paid is about 17000 a year versus twenty-one thousand a year on the one million dollar condo. So, so this is uh, you know an incredible amount of money that we're losing. So you know basically you're getting an apartment tax free, and a huge one too at a prime location. Uh, so yes, I mean if you raise the tax a hundred times to approximate what the one million dollar condo was paying, uh, there's no way somebody's going to pay a hundred million dollars for that, and they have to pay uh, you know a hundred times more than the seventeen thousand. Uh, or, or even more. Um, so everything is factored in. You know, these are rich people. They don't throw their money away. So they, they factored all this in and they realized that uh, this is an undertaxed property, uh, so they have to pay more in price, but uh, they're willing to do that because they don't pay the taxes. Now, going back to the vacant land in, in, in New York City, you, you've done a lot of work on that. You estimate that yeah, well, there's a lot of vacant land, and a lot of it, uh, or not a lot, but a good percentage of it is so undertaxed, it's actually literally uh, taxed at one-tenth the rate of a building right next door. Um, we have an example on 2nd Avenue between uh, 35th and 36th Street, uh, which sort of is over the Midtown Tunnel, but actually it's eight separate lots, and they're contiguous lots. And uh, it turns out that those, if you add them all together, uh, there's a bigger, it's a bigger property parcel than the building right behind it, um, yet the property tax is one-tenth of the uh, rate of the 22-story uh, building right behind it on, uh, on uh, 35th Street. 
Um, so uh, this, this happens quite a bit, and I don't know why one-tenth is a magic ratio, but that seems to come up a lot. Uh, so these are drastically undertaxed parcels. Uh, there's no real incentive to develop them. So uh, people who own these parcels uh, just hold them forever until the market is, is cresting, they think, and, and then they sell it and make a big killing on the price. Well, they're getting, so theoretically, they're getting, according to your numbers or the study's numbers, they're getting 5% a year just for holding it. So they're getting uh, a tax-free appreciation uh, year by year. So there's no, so the only way to, to force that land into development is to, is to start taxing it at the, uh, at, at the same rate as a developed piece of property. Right. There has been uh, land value uh, tax initiatives in this country, uh, probably from the time of Henry George. Uh, and nothing major and dramatic has ever, has ever stuck. Uh, your comments on that, why, why do you think that's the case? Well, uh, I mean, New York City itself has had uh, a land value tax uh, from 1920 to 1932 under Governor Al Smith, um, because at that time we also had a housing crisis and uh, people were not uh, able to find affordable housing. And, you know, this was a tenement era and people were crammed, uh, you know, 12 to a, a couple of rooms. And uh, so this actually uh, untaxed all uh, buildings above, uh, I think, $5,000 uh, uh, in capital. Uh, so in other words, the first 5000 was taxed, but then everything after that wasn't. Uh, so we had a huge building boom. In fact, we had a building boom that was four times the national rate, um, even given the 1920s, which was the Roaring Twenties, and everything was being developed. Um, you know, this is when the Empire State Building was first started, uh, toward the end of that period. Uh, and uh, this is when we had a huge, all these pre-war buildings that we have in New York City were built. Um, but it's like anything else, you know, when the real estate lobby starts to realize that they're losing out um, in uh, unearned income and, and rent, um, they agitate for, for getting those proceeds back to them. They uh, get the people elected that they feel will be more favorable. And uh, eventually this policy was rescinded and and we went back to the, uh, you know, taxing buildings and land um, and, uh, un, you know, and, and basically reducing the tax uh, so that uh, the profits go back to the developers again. Um, but they actually go back to the banks because what happens when you untax land, as we just talked about, is, is the price goes up and somebody has to finance that price. So the rent gets converted into interest payments for a bank. Uh, so you make the banks very rich uh, that would, with unearned income. Uh, you make the developers very rich through speculation. Um, but the city is losing out, and either the city cuts back or it has to tax something else. It has to tax wages or it has to tax sales or, uh, or some kind of transaction. Um, so we're all losing out. Well, the, I guess the argument would be that... Um you could only do it in an area like New York City or that's fast growing over a long period of time because if you had a no growth area, you, should, you wouldn't have the appreciation, you wouldn't have the speculation, and you wouldn't have the banks being able to charge. You're also familiar with the, the Georgia's efforts on two-rate taxing, you know, yeah. which, uh, which has caught on in certain areas. Do you want to talk about some of the... Uh, yeah, I mean, for example, uh, Pennsylvania seems to be doing the best with this, and uh, Harrisburg uh, had a uh, uh, two-rate uh, has a two-rate tax. It was originally two to one. Um, in other words, the buildings were 
uh, tax at a rate of, of twice the land when uh, Mayor uh, Stephen Reed started in 1971 or two or something. Um, he was mayor for about 25 years, and uh, he raised the uh, ratio to six to one so that the buildings were taxed at a rate of six times uh, the, the land value. Uh, so it's not pure because uh, none of these things are ever totally pure, but it's, it's, it was enough of a change that he says uh, made a dramatic difference in the city. And it went from the second worst uh, uh, small city in the country um, after East St. Louis uh, to one of the best. And uh, we, George, have had a conference up there a couple of years ago, and it's a shiny city with vertical garages instead of sprawling surface lots. Uh, because now you can't uh, make money on a surface lot. You have to stack the cars in order to uh, be able to pay the tax. Um, there's not so much vacant land that's uh, just derelict and being unused. There's a new park and so on. Um, you know, Mason Gaffney makes the point that he's one of our leading Georgists that, that Detroit actually did have a, a tax on the land because they had nothing else uh, when the car industry started. And uh, that was uh, how they managed to grow so fast and and develop all of these big factories for making automobiles. Um, so Detroit uh, was taxing the land and, and favoring people who can make efficient use out of it. And then they stopped doing that in the 1950s, and then Detroit went into a, a slow but then quicker decline. Um, now, how much of that was due to exporting jobs to Japan and having them make cars instead of the United States? And, and that kind of thing, and how much is due to the tax policy is open to debate, but certainly it's a factor. Well, to talk about that point, because I think it's a, it's a crucial point, uh, and I think even Georgists may lose sight of that. Either the land values don't create the, the productivity of the economy. You have to have the productivity first, and then the land is able to claim a share of that because of its monopoly position location position, but it, but productivity is predisposed first. I mean, you have a, you're not going to worry about a land value tax in Haiti because without any productivity, there is no real value to the, to the land, maybe on the beaches with foreign hotels and so forth. So, yeah. and, and Detroit kind of proves, or proves it. Once they went into decline, well, then the values and everything of the land went down. So it really comes down to if a nation wants to tax itself efficiently and it wants to tax the land, yeah. you have to almost look at the nation as a unit and not all areas are going to have super land values. New York is a, is, a, is a very unusual case. It was always the center of the American universe because of the confluence of the rivers, the Hudson River, and then the access to the Erie Canal, it's a seaport. Uh, so it collected a lot of activities which gave it value and then of course it was a self-reinforcing -rein cycle. Now, as, a, as kind, of a, kind of a new Rome wind effect, it's now drawing money from around the world in the financial areas and so forth. So its tax base <clears throat> and its revenues are even much greater than the land itself here and the economy itself here is producing. It's drawing uh, foreign uh, wealth here simply because of its unusual productivity in managing and manipulating wealth. But it's the wealth is what's causing it in the first place. The land value goes up to to reflect that. And it's kind of an iterative process. And at some point in time, sometimes that wealth slows down and the land values lock in place. But by and large, those, <coughs> those locales 
which maintain their, their values over the longest period of time. Of those locales that are not necessarily one industry specific, have multiple uses as a city, London, Paris, uh, New York. Uh. You know, if, if the alternative is to tax income or sales, uh, that too is, is, or actually that only, is going to depress economic activity, whereas taxing the land uh, will actually encourage it because you'll get people who can be productive on the land and aren't either speculating or squatting on it. Um, so you'll chase out the people who are not uh, productive and you'll get people who can use the land effectively. Um, so we say that the land value tax actually encourages uh, production uh, and that's the only tax that does. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if, if your city has to make uh, uh, revenues from something, uh, you don't want to tax income because you discourage working. You don't want to tax sales because you discourage sales. It's also punitive to the poor um, who spend most of their income on, on buying things. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you want to tax land because the value of the land is it can't be exported, uh, it can't be expropriated, uh, and it's... Uh, uh, going to go up as long as there's economic uh, growth. Any other comments you want to make on uh, the land situation in, in, in Manhattan? Would you argue that it's, 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 it's so unique that we can't draw any conclusions from it or, it's, or that it's just an excess of the various theme that is playing out everywhere in this, in this country? Yeah, I think that's right. I think the scale is much greater in New York or in London or Hong Kong big cities like that. Um, but uh, the principle is the same. Uh, the land is more valuable in some places than others. And if you don't collect it, it's not that the rent disappears. It just goes to the banks and to the developers or speculators. Uh, so it should go to the people who've, uh, whose demand created it, which is all of us. Um, so we should get the locational value of, of all the uh, locations. People simply want to live in a thriving, uh, you know, well-developed city with a lot of amenities like New York, uh, they don't want to go to Cleveland or Wichita or, or uh, you know, any smaller town, uh, even if it's much cheaper to live and they can get a bigger house. Uh, you know, these are people who are making a lot of money and they can afford to live here and, and they want a place to live where, they, where their money will do something for them. Uh, so, you know, even though you could get a big warehouse in the middle of Kansas and and move these floor operations there, uh, people don't want to live there. Uh, so we have to recognize that New York City is a desirable place to live and tax for its location accordingly. Okay, any other, any other insights or comments you want to make on the land situation in New York City? Uh, no, I mean, it's just that we're, you know, as I said, we've, we're, we're losing out on a lot of revenue. Uh, it's much more than the raw numbers make it appear. Uh, because you would spur so much productivity that you would have a, a growing economy and more jobs and more opportunities. Uh, so just you, you can't just look at, well, okay, we're losing $60 billion a year in, in land uh, value taxes. It, it would actually do much more to transform the city if we collected that and not the other things that we collect instead. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's a synergistic thing. If uh, you were to impose a tax... Would you do it as a big bang imposition all at once, or would you use a transition over, let's say, a 10, 15, 20 year period? Well, I certainly wouldn't take that long. And now I know some of my colleagues like to do a 10 year phase in 
um, uh, you know, presumably to give people a chance to adjust. But uh, you know, once you put that plan out there uh, and developers uh, and landowners know it's coming, they're going to adjust very quickly, whether it's over, uh, whether the plan is for 10 years or, or, or two years. Uh, they're probably going to adjust within two years for the 10-year plan. Uh, so I don't see any reason to make it so long. Now, what we do have to watch is the widow problem, uh, the poor widow problem, as we call it in the Georgia circle, where somebody is land rich but cash poor, and they uh, can't afford a high uh, land rent. Now, so, so we have a proposal for deferral of collecting uh, the land value tax until the property is sold. Uh, in other words, if you've got a poor widow and she doesn't have much money, uh, we say, okay, we won't collect the tax from you, but when you die or when you sell the property, uh, the next owner has to pay that tax so that that revenue is still collected at some point. Well, let's say I own I owned the land and I just leased it out. You know, what, uh, you know, why would I even bother? If I was just going to be a, a guy that owned land to, le to, 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 to lease it out, the rental value is not, is not going to me. So why should I bother even owning it? Yeah. If I'm not going to keep it, you know. Well, I mean, first of all, if you own it and you develop something on it, if you put a building on it, uh, you're certainly going to make profits different. on that. That's different. That's different. Yeah. So that's, that's what we want to encourage. We would completely untax development of land um, so that people make efficient buildings and they keep them up and so forth. Uh, we don't want these repeated depreciations which encourage absentee land ownership and uh, you know, encourage people to let their property run down as a, as a depreciation. Um, so we want to encourage them to build and maintain their properties uh, with buildings. Okay, I think we've, uh, we've kind of given everyone a feel for what's going on in, in Manhattan, how valuable it is, what, what kind of a solution we'd like to, to uh, employ uh, to, to make the city uh, even more viable than it is and fair to, to all of the inhabitants. So, Scott, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.